This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Marilyn Waring from the Auckland University of Technology. Marilyn joined me to talk about her book, Still Counting, Wellbeing, Women's Work and Policymaking. It follows on from her most seminal work, which was published 30 years ago and is called Counting for Nothing, What Men Value and What Women Are Worth. Marilyn and I discuss the limits to GDP as an economic measure. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3, Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And as I mentioned, uh, I have a really special and important guest on the show today. She is Marilyn Waring. Marilyn is a professor of public policy at uh, Auckland University of Technology and um, she's done many things in her life, so many achievements that uh, it's hard to list them all really and uh, obviously she's certainly ruffled a lot of feathers which means she's on the right track in what she's been doing. She's a political economist and she was the youngest female MP in New Zealand's parliament uh, when she was elected in the 1970s and um, she also chaired a very important committee which managed public expenditure which of course as we know is where the power is it's certainly with treasury and the money so uh, Marilyn has a huge amount of uh, expertise in economics as well as government and she wrote as I said a very important work about uh, roughly 30 to 31 years ago and uh, it was called Counting for Nothing What Men Value and What Women Are Worth and she's followed it up with this short Shorter book, which is great to see how her thinking has evolved, and it's called Still Counting Wellbeing, Women's Work, and Policy Making. And uh, I'll leave it to Marilyn to explain the complexities of the topic. But at a bigger picture level, we're looking at the limitations of GDP as a measure that is useful in any way to um, identify a nation's prosperity or well-being or success or happiness. Um, certainly politicians spend their lives referring to it and being proud about it growing and going up. But uh, as Marilyn will explain, it's um, a very inaccurate measure. And it's uh, also, when she looked into the figures, it's kind of surprising what was involved in um, coming up with the calculations. So I'm welcoming Marilyn now. Hi there, Marilyn. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. I'm delighted to be able to talk with you. It's really lovely to get some international viewpoints, and you've certainly looked at this issue from an international perspective, though in your new book you are drawing on some really interesting examples from Nova Scotia, from Australia, from New Zealand. But first, in terms of your first book, which is a fascinating read and still so relevant today... How did it come about? Because as I've said, your background was in politics as a parliamentarian and you've done and engaged in so many issues as a parliamentarian and also this issue of unpaid work and particularly women's caring roles that um, are not accounted for. Well, when I was in the parliament, one of the things that you learn very quickly is that when the government decides that it will redistribute revenue, and in my days there were loads of uh, loans and other forms of subsidies for business, 
that only that group uh, or that part of the nation's economy that appear to be producers are the ones that you can see visibly to redistribute those resources. And if you're not a producer, you're generally thought of, if you're a problem, as welfare. And the rules that set this up were written in 1953, and then they were imposed on the whole world. And crucially in the rules is something called the boundary of production. Fine if you're on the right side of the boundary of production. That is, that there's some kind of market exchange in your work. But quite specifically, always left out, has been all unpaid work. So that's overwhelmingly all unpaid household work, unpaid caring work, our community and voluntary work that we do unpaid, what's called subsistence production. So all of you who are currently harvesting, if you've got enough water, um, from your city gardens or even from your farm gardens, that subsistence production doesn't count either. And across the world, that's the biggest amount of work that is done. And it's overwhelmingly done by women. So from 1953 onwards, we had a particular and truly significant bias built into our GDP figures. And a really simple way of remembering how this works is that if a man marries the housekeeper he's been paying to do that work and she becomes his wife, when she was the paid housekeeper it was work and now she is the wife and he doesn't pay her, it is not work. Although exactly the same services, production, etc. are going on. And so this biases the evidence that you have in front of you if you're trying to make government policy. You can think in Australia a really important and immediate effect of this is the fact that women frequently don't have the income or certainly have breaks from income to invest in superannuation schemes. So overwhelmingly in Australia, those who are in receipt of the pension and um, you know all the other issues that come with that, having to go and ask every time you want a major dental appointment or something. Um, so you start to, to uh, anchor that disparity right over people's lives. And you know, this is not a healthy way to make good policy, to leave all of that work out. My generation, I'm in my 60s now, um, we are frequently looking after older parents. And they don't actually have to be living in our homes for us to have to spend hours a week to ensure that they're safe and cared for. And many, many of my women colleagues my age in academia are no longer 
um, being able to supervise as many students, uh, to write the peer-reviewed articles that people expect of them, they're too busy in their unpaid work now. So in the UK, business has noticed this affecting them to such a large extent, and particularly it's their senior women who simply cannot be replaced, who finally have, have too much caring responsibility. And so business enterprises themselves have got together in the UK to look at the government because they can see the effect it has on them. But in the meantime, the majority of work on the planet just doesn't get counted. It's clearly a huge proportion of the activity that happens in any country and um, there were a range of time use surveys which seemed to illuminate the issue even more and to highlight just how large a sector, as you call them, this work is and in some cases it's the largest sector in a nation. Could you share with us some of that information about um, just what kind of proportion this work is? Well, Australia's made some truly significant breakthroughs in research in this area. Uh, I can go back to some work done by Duncan Ironmonger and Evelyn Sonius at the University of Melbourne. And Duncan uh, used traditional input-output approaches that we use to assess the value of all unpaid work in Australia compared with what was registered in the GDP. And he, of course, looked at of assets in the home and intermediate consumption, etc. Now this is in the 1990s, but what he was able to demonstrate was that the household sector was at the time three times the value of all mining and mineral extraction and ten times the value of all manufacturing. Now in the 25 or more years since then, we of course have had some quite major structural changes. But the most recent data that I could get for Australia, 2016, was that childcare, now I'm not talking about paid childcare, I'm talking about unpaid childcare, in and of itself was the single largest economic sector in the Australian economy. And the second largest sector was all the rest of the unpaid work. And coming in third was the top market sector, which these days appears to be a lot of insurance, intellectual property, a lot of e-based services and production. And even those figures leave out the work that Julie Smith has been doing in Canberra. And Julie is probably the leading world uh, researcher on the value of lactation. So even these unpaid figures that are in my book, whether they're from Canada or Nova Scotia or New Zealand or Australia, are still leaving out the most important moment in the health of the first six months 
of a child uh, through lactation. And as Julie says, it has all kinds of benefits, you know. There isn't any pollution. It's such a preventative. It assists the later health and education of the child. And I have no idea how the figures would look if we added the lactation value into that as well. And also in Melbourne, as I understand it, there's some new work being done. Mike Salvaris has been in the area for a long time, and I think he's working with the University of Melbourne on looking at wellbeing indicators. So we've got ourselves to a point internationally where it is now recognised that GDP is a very distorted comparator. You have to be very, very careful how you use GDP. But we know that it does not give messages to government about where investments should go. GDP, for example, really it counts the underground economy in Australia, so all drug trafficking is counted in the GDP because money is exchanged in the system. Obviously, um, across the world, the particular trades either in illegal armaments or trades in people, you know, for slavery or for sexual servitude. Because money is exchanged and because the Reserve Bank or the Central Bank can count the amount of money that is exchanged and compare it with what is reported as legitimately exchanged, it can see how much illegal enterprises add to the GDP. The destruction of the environment for years and years. If you think of the Amazon, which so many of us depend on, as the lungs for the planet. While the dear Amazon is being the lungs for the planet, it's not producing anything at all, according to the GDP. It only produces when it's logged and destroyed. And it doesn't actually matter whether the logging is legal or illegal, it still gets counted. So we've reached a situation where many, many international commentators are finally tugging at their forelock and saying, oh, mea culpa, uh, yes, GDP uh, leaves a lot to be desired. But the, the impetus for me to write still counting was because what some of the, the commentators have come up with really is the emperor's new clothes. They're pretending we have something new, but nothing about the values at the basis of it all have changed. So that's the position we're all, you know, a lot of countries are in now, trying to think, okay, so we need an alternative. What's it gonna be? Who's gonna pay for it? How are we gonna build it? And that's what's still counting was about. And it's so helpful in terms of analysing, I guess, some of the propositions that have been put forward and their their real issues and biases, inbuilt biases that are in these different ways of approaching well-being, particularly the OECD's suggestion. And uh, I was really fascinated by that chapter. I mean, GDP seems like it's not going to go away, but it has a very narrow usage. Um, and when we're looking... 
It's a kind of just, we just need to keep it in its corner. Yeah, <laughs> and not use it for, um, yeah, the measure of all success. That's right. Yeah, I certainly noticed that New Zealand and your semi-new Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has put a lot of emphasis on well-being as a, an important thing to measure in New Zealand and she was making a big deal out of it at the Davos very recently and you talk about the OECD and their very Eurocentric way of approaching well-being. Could you share a bit about that approach and the New Zealand approach and are there really important limitations to that approach? I found the OECD approach to be, well, in the first place, terribly Eurocentric. If you think of New Zealand and Australia, there are a whole lot of things. First of all, if you're an isolated, huge continent without contiguous geographical feature boundaries with anybody, you don't share air, you don't share rivers, etc. Uh, and New Zealand, of course, again, that whole sense of isolation without that, that immediately changes. You know, if you've got a limited amount of investment to put into data gathering, staying with air is a really good, obvious example. If I was a policymaker in Australia and somebody gave me the national data for air quality, I'd look at them like they were a clan. Just what an earth value is that to me in a continent the size of Australia? Sometimes the air quality data we want is just for particular parts of a city, not even particular parts of a state. And, and in Europe, to measure national air quality is a completely different kind of concept than doing it in Australia or New Zealand. In our places, that's really stupid. Eurocentrism, of course, for New Zealanders, also leaves out our tangata whenua, our Māori, uh, with whom we have a treaty partnership and from whom we have a lot to learn in terms of environmental sustainability, for example. And the Eurocentric model just does not fit here. And I would suggest in Australia you would have similar difficulties uh, with the Indigenous respect that more and more is being noted, certainly, in events I come to, if not fully understood. And so that's another issue. Another really good example, I think, uh, is the way that Europe, because of the European community, we can see all of this in Brexit at the moment, very much share similar data sets for everything they measure. And GDP in the community is very, very important because it forms the basis of the annual uh, contributions that you're expected to make to the community. So there's a very particular way and a very particular reason for measuring in Europe that we do not share, either Australia or New Zealand. And I can go on. If we just think in terms of, you know, the things that happen really quickly that no system ever thought of, uh, and we think about Airbnb or we think of Uber, all of a sudden 
people's household assets, which weren't worth anything when they were only being used to assist with unpaid work. All of a sudden, in Airbnb, household assets become deductible because they're part of running a business. So this immediately becomes a tax advantage for the people who are wealthy enough to run Airbnb or to have a car to run an Uber. It's been an underground creeping tax advantage because nobody addressed it. Uh, and yeah, Amy, there's just, there's so many pieces of this puzzle. Mm. And again, you know, Clive Hamilton and Richard Dennis, again, Australians, they've been terrific commentators on this for a lot of years. And I'm in fact joining Richard Dennis and Anne Mann at the Bendigo Book Festival this year in August. Uh, so we can That's try and solve these issues. You uh, mentioned Richard and Anne and actually Clive, and I've had all of them on the show. Oh, right. Yeah, including Anne, who's mentioned your work a number of times. So she's certainly a great advocate for this in Australia, and obviously Richard with his no-nonsense approach to everything. Yes, and, and I think, you know, Anne is like a lot of people, um, when you have been a carer, you deeply, deeply understand this. It's the invisibility and the expectation um, that you're available 24-7 to do this work that also has such a resonance um, with my writing. Mm. You mentioned in this book that Really, in terms of the lived experience of the economists who are coming up with these ideas, a lot of them, you know, want their work to be valued and wonder why is my work not included or counted. And you highlight such a great point, which is that economics is a social science. It was actually in an arts degree and uh, in some cases it still is. At Oxford, it's part of the PPE, the Politics, Philosophy and Economics. But it's now kind of caught in off in Australia and perhaps in New Zealand as, um, as a part of a business or commerce degree and not really a, a core component of arts and the humanities or social sciences. But by raising that, you also highlight the fact that it does involve value judgments and, uh, and a lot of bias and interpretation. Yes. And of course, in still counting, I used quite a lot of those, what I call the wheelbarrow academic words. The, the ology words, but I try to really deconstruct them mm. because this is so important. You see, it doesn't matter whether you're from the left or the right in economics, you all left out what we did. <laughs> you know, it's like, I remember Balarabzuk saying to me once about a friend of hers who said, I've been married to a Republican, a Democrat and a co communist, and none of them knew how to take out the garbage. Um, <laughs> And, you know, from the left or right, nobody's really moved into women's unpaid work. You start, you get very, very different values in Indigenous economics, um, whether that's First Nations people in North America or the Sami people uh, up on the Arctic Circle or our own Māori. Um, indigenous economics has very different value bases 
um, and especially around uh, sustainable environmental standards. Um, one of the stories I always love telling is about the work in Nunavut um, done by Mark Nielski, where wealth is seen as the number of people who share a dog team, not the number of people who have their own dog team. Um, so really different value bases go on here. But since 1953, economics has just been really turgidly stuck. And it hasn't gone back and really investigated the values that underlie the answers to, to so many of its questions. And, you know, truly when I... <laughs> for example, would ask, so this, here's a long word, epistemology. Okay, so what does it mean? It means how do we know what we know? It's really simple. That's what it means. Well, it's perfectly obvious that men and women have different epistemologies <laughs> that mm -hmm. they bring to the table to discuss economics. But there's hard, if you're off in the business faculty, there's hardly ever a woman around the table. And when they do tend to be there, if they want to become professors, then they have to do what the boys do. You know, they have to play in the same sandpit, use the same theory. Otherwise, they're going to be sort of isolated out on a limb somewhere and not taken terribly seriously. So the conceptual uh, leap that needs to be made here and the change in value judgments that need to be made here. And this is because our Prime Minister has said she wants to move with a wellbeing budget, this is kind of the moment. I, I was in the middle of another book, but I actually had to stop and do still counting really quickly because it's you know, over 60 years we've been stuck with this pathological value system that says killing people is great for growth and killing the environment is great for growth too. If a government says actually we're going to move in a different direction, this is likely to be the only chance we'll get for another 60 years because whatever they put in place, you know, we'll never be able to shake that straitjacket off again in my lifetime. So that's why I got pretty exercised about it. Mm. Um, and hopefully it will play into the debate in Australia and here. I noticed that, and I, I don't know if the government has done this in Australia, but I did notice that the Labour opposition as a policy platform for this election has said that they intend to reintroduce nationwide time use surveys and this is a fundamental piece of data that we need for the new regime so i was delighted to read that and to see that commitment yes that is really great uh, to highlight and uh, we certainly used to have it for some period and it, it was halted yes yeah yes by yeah, the abbott abbott government Yes. Um, I just want to finish this discussion, which unfortunately we're going to have to close out, but I wanted to just highlight 
the position that you had and then that you've kind of evolved your position in terms of the way that unpaid caring and household work is measured because there is quite a blunt way of doing it which is to figure out what the market replacement would be or the market cost is of that work but you've evolved your position and um, I'd really like to just quickly hear how you've come to a different position. Yes Amy when I was a member of parliament and I wanted to create visibility for um, rivers, forests, or unpaid work. I was in the trap. I was co-opted. So the easiest way to provide visibility was usually to find some estimate of the market value and to throw that into the equation. And from inside the Beltway, uh, that was definitely what I thought had to be the solution. The longer that I've been out of Parliament and the more time I've had to reflect and to think, I've grown completely opposed to that. First of all, because if we do use market values, then we actually we abstract from the true characteristics. So... Uh, I use the wonderful Tasmanian forests that I've been very, very worried about in your fires um, as a demonstration of the range of biodiversity and the lunacy of thinking that you can actually give all parts and characteristics uh, of that biodiversity a dollar value. When I started to think more about unpaid work and I thought about what the GDP measures, you know, obviously militarism is one of the biggest things it measures and it's huge in a number of countries' GDP. And then the fact that it measures all the illegal activities as long as it can sort of measure the cash in circulation. And I thought to myself, Marilyn, this is... This is a very pathological system. And I do not want to see the work that women do, whether it's uh, work in their home, whether it's giving birth, whether it's lactating, um, whether it's all the, the caring of older people or the growing of healthy veggies in the backyard or whatever it is. I now have moral and ethical difficulties. I could not morally or ethically argue on the same basis as I did 30 years ago to include it for the sake of visibility. And humankind has enough brain power to juggle different sets of data and to come to conclusions. So we do not need everything to be registered as a dollar. We could take time use data measured in hours and minutes. We can take GDP measured in dollars. We can take environmental characteristics measured in all the different range of ways that they need to be measured scientifically and again not stick any dollar value on them or have some abstraction and rely on people in our policy processes and in advocacy to be clever enough to deal across that range of data and in fact it's exactly what happens in a cabinet when they're arguing that's exactly what happens. They step back from the abstraction and start telling stories. So I'm hopeful in the next two or three years 
Um, as people watch what New Zealand is doing, and I'm sure there'll be critics as well, and uh, they've targeted a, a revision in 2021, that we all need to be thinking about this and um, thinking intergenerationally. Whatever decisions we make now about this data set will be what governs the next 50 years. And we have to be far more responsible than we have been for the last 50. Marilyn, I couldn't agree more. And your work is such an important part of that. And I just commend you for everything you do. And obviously the great determination and grit you must need to continually push up against an orthodoxy, which is determined to stay the, the way it is. Uh, so thank you so much for everything um, you've shared with us today. And I hope people can read Still Counting and your first work because uh, we just barely scratched the surface. So um, I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much, Amy, and lovely to talk to you. So lovely to speak with you. Thank you, Marilyn. I've been speaking with Professor Marilyn Waring, who is a Professor of Public Policy at Auckland University of Technology. She was the youngest female New Zealand MP in the 1970s. She is an activist on so many fronts, but she's also a political economist. So she knows exactly what she's talking about and debunks so many economic myths 